I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And what does it mean to be patriotic? To love one's own nation and have an affinity for its citizens and ways of life. And why is patriotism increasingly a partisan issue divided across party lines? Our guest this week has some theories on why certain political demographics are less patriotic than others. Sadak Ahuja is a student at McGill University studying political science and international development. He writes about U.S., Canadian, and Indian politics and has been published in Common Dreams, The Bellows, The Postmillennial, and The American Conservative. Sadak, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get to the meat of our conversation about a waning patriotism on the left and a larger disconnect between the Western working class and its elites, I want us to first ground your perspective in your politics. You've described yourself as a national communist. Can you contextualize that for us and how you kind of arrived at the views that you hold? Sure. So I think uh, the national communist definition is for me because, I mean, I at the end of the day, I am an Indian citizen, but I'm studying in the West. So in terms of the Indian context, I think I would describe myself as a nationalist there. But in the West, obviously, because it's like, you know, sort of a first world kind of area, I wouldn't describe myself as nationalist. I would just, you know, I think a healthy patriotism is good on the West, not nationalism. But basically, the essence is that my economic policies are are mostly similar in that I believe in like left-wing economics. I believe in worker ownership of industries. I believe in a a stronger welfare state and so on. So these are uh, some of the basic planks of my ideology. And in terms of my sort of national slash patriotic side, I think national in the Indian sense for me would be upholding territorial sovereignty and resisting imperialism when it if it comes from either the western side or even if it comes from the eastern side like china and patriotism for example in the west where i'm currently studying would be you know recognition of the fact that we care for each other as citizens as we have something in common as citizens and we wish to resist the scourge of global capital in that sense uh, because i think capital and the owners of capital don't have a country really and they're not loyal to their citizens they are loyal to themselves as a class so that's kind of where that sort of patriotism comes in is the sort of hope of a better country and obviously i think in terms of that as well my approach differs from a lot of other so-called leftists in that you know, many on the left, especially uh, if we compare to the entire saga of Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom, they were, you know, mostly pro-EU. They did not believe in the concept of national sovereignty. I don't think most leftists today, I mean, when I speak of leftists, I mean the sort of professional managerial class and college grads that make up the sort of managerial elite of the left. They don't believe in the concept of national sovereignty, but I think it's very important because national sovereignty is instrumental in giving its citizens a sense of purpose to unite for and at the same time is very useful in constraining and restricting predatory capitalism from infringing on the rights of citizens. And before we really dig into that, because that's going to be the real bulk of our convo, I want to circle back to where you've been published. So you've written for Common Dreams and The Bellows, which seem pretty firmly situated on the left, Mm -hmm. but also the millennial and the American conservative, which I think most readers would probably place somewhere on the right. And I feel like this says less about your writing, which is pretty ideologically consistent across all the platforms you write for, mm-hmm. or about how our media seems to be siloing entire topics of discussion as either, quote, left or right. 
Yep. Am I on base here? And what are your thoughts on this phenomenon? Yeah, I do call myself left wing because, I mean, historically, the beliefs I hold are historically have been a part of the left wing of the political spectrum. But I think that sort of spectrum dissolved. And what we have right now is a left wing of neoliberalism and a right wing of neoliberalism. I don't think any sort of wing necessarily represents a truly populist movement, which is, you know, rooted in the community, rooted in the patriotism of the common people and rooted in actual genuine and economic populism, which is redistributive. So I think in that sense, you know, this entire left-right sort of schism is not something I'd like to participate in as such. I believe there are genuinely good people on the other side of the political spectrum, the so-called right-wing people as well. And I think a lot of our views are very common on a lot of areas. And I think that's what the issue is, is that even many gatekeepers on the left, they say that, no, no, you know, you can't work with these so-called right-wing people. They are alt-right or they're fascist and so on. And then this is by the way, a label that's just dropped without any shred of evidence whatsoever. But I think it's completely counterproductive to not be able to work with people across the aisle if they share the same view. Because many people they have different views on a lot of things, but if your goal is to unite them and get stuff done, then you have to unite with people who don't necessarily agree with you on a lot of things. And you know, going back to your point about the media misrepresenting things as, oh, this is left and oh, this is right. I think there is you know a shred of truth to that when they paint the representatives of the left as some sort sort of loony, woke, obsessed people, narcissists, and a lot of the issues with the right. I think there is obviously a degree of truth to that. But, you know, mostly the people that are underrepresented, the people who don't vote, and a great deal of people have a lot in common with each other. And that part of the stuff is just not being represented. So if you can, you know, market that sort of, obviously marketing is more of a sort of neoliberal term in this sense, but if you can sort of market that side of the so-called right-wing people have actually a lot in common with so-called left-wing people on issues on economic populism and national sovereignty, for example, then I think that's where I'd like to focus more on rather than left or right wing as such. Yeah, if you could see me uh, while you were talking, I was nodding so fiercely, I think my head might have popped. <laughs> I completely agree. I find these labels, like over the last several years, especially since basically 2016, after the election of Donald Trump, I found myself reassessing what all these labels meant because I've always been, I'm not as to the left as you, but I would mm-hmm. probably say like center left, right? At least that's where I envisioned myself. Yeah. But after I started investigating sort of what caused Donald Trump to be elected, and as I saw what I was finding out coming into conflict with what a lot of the media was reporting, I just really started questioning if this whole paradigm was helpful at all. Because I, I think like what you just said, I don't think it is. And I oftentimes feel like when we label things right wing or left wing, we're not just labeling them. And by we, I really mean the media Yeah, to label them. We're labeling them as sort of value judgments. Mm-hmm. Like when something gets labeled right wing by someone on the left. It's a pejorative. Yep. And this also happens on the right to a certain extent. I think it's just more noticeable on the left because they just have more control over elite media. Once you see that, once you see it, become aware of it, it's really hard to unsee. Oh, yeah. 100%. 100%. I agree with that. So let's get to the essay that caused me to reach out to you. It's titled The Case for a Left Patriotism. It's an essay for The Bellows, which is an online magazine that advocates for labor populism. You begin your essay with, quote, There is often discussion amongst various self-described leftist circles on the ill effects of Western liberal humanitarian intervention, a reckoning with the malaise of colonialism infected upon various countries around the world. While all of these discussions are meaningful and necessary to form material analysis, 
The fact that many such discussions venture into outright anti-Americanism, anti-Westernism, and straight-up anti-nation-state anarchism poses a serious intellectual and electoral challenge for the left. How can a populist left that wants to win elections and supposedly help the working class do so if it hates the very country it wants to govern, especially when such bourgeois opinions are at direct odds with what workers feel. Such efforts to sideline patriotism also pay an absolute disservice to numerous successful social democratic, socialist, and Marxist movements that sought to counter the far right or secure national liberation and self-rule. If a populist left wants to win, and win big. It must redefine and embrace inclusive patriotism or wither away in the margins of history textbooks to come, end quote. So let's start with your premise. Mm -hmm. What was the inciting incident for this realization on your behalf that the left had lost touch with patriotism with a love for the nation? Because speaking with even my most offline friends, it feels like many people have sensed this shift over the last few years. But what was the moment it became apparent to you that something had fundamentally changed? So I like to describe my general shift in politics with the loss of the Labour Party in the 2019 elections. I like to refer to this entire thing as, as Marx said, first as tragedy, then as farce. So tragedy was Jeremy Corbyn and farce was Bernie Sanders 2020. So I think once you look at the data and once you look at, for example, here I'm speaking about the UK election, once you look at the data, once you look at the voters and once you look at the sort of people in charge of the Labour Party and just the entire trend that that's been going on since Tony Blair, you see that there's something really, really wrong fundamentally at the core of the Labour Party and the so-called left in the United Kingdom. So that's kind of where my um, you know, analysis came because the uh, Labour Party lost the election because it allowed for the Conservatives to win in constituencies that were historically, ever since they were, for example, created in the 1920s, they've always voted Labour. And even when Margaret Thatcher went on her anti-union spree and so on, that these people, these constituencies had people who were, you know, minors and so on, who rejected her economic policies and so on. But these seats, these constituencies decided to ditch the Labour Party, which was their economic ideas were mostly popular, like free broadband, nationalizing the railways, free school meals, etc. These were really popular ideas. But even then, they were rejected. So once you look at why they were rejected, you see that obviously patriotism did play a very big part because of the issue of Brexit. And what Brexit was, it wasn't necessarily a cultural sort of divide. It was made to be a cultural divide by the very people that led the left wing of the Labour Party, which became the entire Jeremy Corbyn movement. But the issue of Brexit was actually a class divide because the people who mostly voted for it were working class people in the so-called red wall constituencies, as they're called. And these were fiercely patriotic and their social views were at direct odds with a majority of what the Labour Party MPs held. I don't want to put the blame on solely on Corbyn here. I don't hate the man as much as, you know, many on the mainstream media in the UK did. I am severely disappointed in him. But a lot of this issue actually stems a lot back uh, historically as well from the days of, you know, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband. So it's been a pretty huge trend in that sense. When I looked at the data and I was like, okay, so I guess that rejecting the demand for sovereignty from an authoritarian and neoliberal institution like the European Union, the left rejected this sort of right to self-determination for the British people, and it paid the price. And the right to self-determination was in no way fascistic or reactionary and so on. If you, for example, look at the 
polls of most British people are open to taking refugees from Hong Kong. The situation in Hong Kong and China worsens, for example. So these people, they're not against trade, you know, because these people elected the Conservative Party. And the Conservative Party has signed a lot of trade deals around the world. But these people were firmly for national sovereignty. And what actually surprised me the most is when I looked into the exact plans for Jeremy Corbyn, what he had in mind electorally. And when I looked at the Maastricht treaties and the Lisbon treaties of the European Union that the UK had signed to enter into that alliance, Jeremy Corbyn's economic policies would literally not have been possible if he were part of the European Union. It was, like I said, an authoritarian institution that mandated and forced neoliberal economics on all its member states. So that's what I was rather confused by, because the two people essentially who were arguing against Brexit, which is against a vote made by the working class, were obviously the Blairites and the centrists of the party. And surprisingly enough, the woke wing of the party, which was, you know, people like Novara Media, Ash Sarkar, Owen Jones, etc. And that's what I've, I found. And I came to a realization that basically these sort of neoliberal economics and social wokeness are basically two sides of the same coin in that scenario. I think a lot was similarly evident with Bernie Sanders as well. I think Bernie Sanders uh, shifted a lot on his immigration views as well. I mean, he did not embrace open borders like much of the activist left does. But Bernie Sanders, for example, in his 2016 campaign was very pro-worker. He got a good portion of his support from blue-collar working class people that were genuine economic populists, that were genuine beneficiaries of his program in 2016. And he almost won. But this year, he, he fared much worse because he sort of paid service to this identity politics of the wokes that exist that Hillary used to sort of be him by saying, oh, you know, breaking up the big banks won't solve racism. So I think Bernie basically became a career launching pad for many of the people that were employed in his campaign. And similar thing can be observed with the United Kingdom as well with, you know, people like Owen Jones and Novara Media and all of these people. It became a sort of launching pad to so-called push the Labour Party left. And, you know, these people in the US as well are pushing the Democratic Party left. But none of these people who want to push any of these institutions left are in any way representative of the opinions of the working class because they call these people fascists, reactionaries, xenophobes, bigots, and so on. So electorally, I think that was my kind of enlightenment where I was like, wait a minute, what's wrong with the beliefs that I hold? And why aren't actual workers representatives of the beliefs of, you know, the left on economic populism? Because, you know, they seem to agree with a lot of the economic positions, but still, why did we get rejected? Then obviously I did a bit, uh, I read a bunch of theory and looked, you know, leftist and Marxist theory. And I, you know, looked at some historical scenarios as well. And I realized that patriotism and anti-wokeness were the uh, good reasons why the Red Wall rejected Labour Party and union workers and black voters rejected Bernie Sanders, patriotism and anti-wokeness are actually fundamental to a lot of what Marxist leftists believe in. You know, once I started looking at essays and I read Lenin, for example, and he has a, a great essay he's written on the patriotism of the great Russian people. So it's not like these opinions are at direct odds with workers. And basically every single movement that has existed, you know, a successful left-wing, let's say a revolution that has existed or a successful left-wing party that's won power, pretty much mostly all around the world have been 
AdSense patriotic. This even holds true for Tony Blair himself when he won power in 1997 by appealing to British patriotism and, you know, patriotic values and so on. And even Clement Attlee when he won power after the Second World War in the UK. I think these values that the left has drifted away from, my first introduction to this sort of thing was, like I said, UK and the US, you know, they've drifted away from patriotism. They've embraced the sort of wokeness side of it. But I think that's just a much bigger, you know, representation of the other sort of beliefs that they have abandoned after the um, introduction of neoliberalism in that their social beliefs are not rooted in the community. They're not rooted in actually connecting with working class people. Their social beliefs are rooted in being aspiring elites. That's why they use the language of aspiring elites, which, like I said, is wokeness and anti-patriotism, because aspiring elites by nature are anarchists. They don't want constraints on their life. They don't want restrictions on their life. They want to be able to roam freely, which is another reason why these aspiring elites support policies like free movement and open borders, which are antithetical to the working class because it lowers their wages and destroys unions. I think it's just a broader trend of what the left represents. The people who inhabit the so-called left movement today in the US and the UK are not workers. They're actually college grads who come from middle to wealthy families. And the left movement has become a sort of career launching pad for them to represent their class interests. And naturally, the workers feel alienated and they're like, where are we going to go? And the right in this sense has been pretty receptive to working class voters in the UK as well. It's been a year, for example, since Corbyn lost, and it's been a year since Boris Johnson won. And even then, a majority of working class voters, I think it's almost two thirds of working class voters are still happy to be part of the Conservative Party in the UK. So there's definitely something institutionally wrong with the left and its rejection of patriotism in its embrace of wokeness is reflective of the class composition of what makes the left, which is professional managerial class and strivers to be the aspiring elite rather than actual workers. Yeah, I want to get to immigration and the Koch brothers in a little bit, but just to touch on what you just said. So, hmm, I guess I've got a two-pronged question here. Hmm. The first one being, why are elites on the left labeling things as fascist and racist and xenophobic that if they were to just ask or just read the interviews from these working class people in the UK, in the United States, and elsewhere they would know the actual reasons why these working class voters vote the way they do. And they can read themselves that it's not fascism or racism most of the time. And more importantly, I think the bigger question I have is, you know, being elite on the left didn't always mean you were opposed to the working class. Some of the strongest advocates for the working class on the left historically in the United States have been highly educated, wealthy elites. The most famous example being FDR who was like incredibly wealthy from an incredibly privileged background and yet was a champion for the working class for many years up until his death. Yep. So what has happened? Like, why has that disconnect happened? Why do the elites of today, why are they not from the same mold of elites from America's past? That's a good question. I think responding to your first one on why the elites label um, workers and all of these other sort of the subaltern as xenophobic, fascist, bigots, and so on. I think this is obviously just they can't be classist in the derogatory terms to use against these people because they claim to be representatives of the working class. So I think anyone who sort of challenges their orthodoxy and just exposes their views is labeled all these wrong reactionary 
bad terms. And I think, especially since the rise of the right-wing populists, there's a sort of frame of mind these people have gone into in that these right-wing populists are, in most sense, genuinely fascist, quote-unquote. And uh, they have gone into this mindset that we must resist anything they say, anything they do, and call it fascism, call it xenophobia. And anyone who questions us by saying, hey, wait a minute, these guys kind of make sense here, or why aren't you addressing this part of the problem? We will label them as heretics and so on. I think a lot of conservative friends of mine have a sort of good analysis on that. And I think it's just the absence of religion from their lives has led to them making a new religion altogether. And I think that is a good explanation. But my explanation mostly is that it's a bunch of elites and they don't like being questioned about policies. And uh, they will call you all the wrong things if you ask them the so-called wrong questions. And the second question that you uh, asked me regarding the elites not having a sense of noblesse oblige to their working class people. I think a great deal of this has to do with the collapse of the unions. When FDR was president, for example, unions were very strong. The depression had hit and communism, uh, the Soviet version of it, was also very strong. And, you know, the membership of the Socialist Party in the United States it had increased from one or two million to 19 million immediately after the Great Depression. And FDR was and every American was worried that you know, you can't keep going on like this. The jazz age era of economics cannot continue. You actually have to give something to the working class. And um, like, obviously, he did come from a more economically progressive background than most people of the establishment at that time in the United States. But I think a lot of his policies and views had to do with the fact that like, well, he was in, in many senses much more hospitable towards unions, but he was more concerned with the rise of actual socialism and actual, you know, Soviet-style communism in his country than anything else. So his his policies, therefore, are social democratic in that he is doing essentially welfare capitalism to stop socialism or communism from taking root properly in the country. But why have the elites of today why aren't they doing this as such? Well, like I said, the answer is the collapse of the unions. Union membership ever since Reagan and Thatcher came into power has, in the US at least, has essentially halved. Uh, unions are themselves, they're the top echelons of the unions, are staffed by college graduates and the professional managerial class. They're not staffed by actual workers and they don't really represent the workers. And I think a good indication of this is if you look at the actual union household vote. Trump got 40, like more than 40% of union workers voted for Trump. And if you look at why he won Ohio in 2020, and even in 2016, why he won a bunch of the Rust Belt states is literally union workers voted for him. And even if you compare this to the United Kingdom, if you look at the 2019 election vote, 41% of uh, union workers voted for the Labour Party. And the unions are well, you know, what makes the Labour Party up, even though you know they're much weaker today than they were under Thatcher. But 40% of union voters also voted conservative in opposition to the Labour Party. So while the unions are on a decline, I think the people who staff the unions don't represent the workers they claim to want to represent. And workers in this sense are therefore shifting to the right-wing parties because the left does not have a strong union base anymore. So it does not, you know, it does not have to give patronage to the union workers as such. And this sort of social view, 
was then taken on by many of the establishment left, such as, you know, Bill Clinton and Obama and so on. And then the social, like, even though the economic views have been uh, repudiated by the left-wing populists, the social views have not. So I think workers can clearly see that if you're holding the social views of an aspiring elite while talking about having an economic program that claims to want to help these people, whereas the right-wing are not necessarily holding these views about aspiring elites. They're talking about community, the nation, and so on. Like Even if they're, for example, not being genuine on this, if you want to say, but at least they're talking about it. And some of their economic policies have moved a bit to the left, even with Boris Johnson, for example, in the UK. He's nationalized the railways in the north. You know, Trump came to power saying he's going to tax Wall Street. He's going to, you know, pull out of NAFTA. And he, he was, in many senses, he, he tried to counter, uh, in 2016, he tried to counter Hillary from the left as well. And, you know, the moment he left Steve Bannon go, for example, was when Steve Bannon suggested that he increase the tax on millionaires to 44% of the marginal tax rate. So I think that's the issue is that the messaging is not reaching the workers who the left claim to represent. And which, again, goes back to our previous segment on this, where I said that the left essentially is not representatives of the workers because they're not made up of the workers. So I think that's basically the synopsis of this. Yeah, we'll touch on this more in a bit. But there's a part of me that feels just from reading about Cesar Chavez that if he were alive in 2016, he would have voted for Trump. Yeah. Midway through your essay for The Bellows, you referenced David Goodart's book, The Road to Somewhere. And I think this is actually a very key part of understanding this whole kind of cultural political shift. The Road to Somewhere describes the fundamental differences between the somewheres who tend to be working class, less highly educated, and they usually live 20 miles or less from where they grew up, and the anywheres, which are the more educated, more traveled, more cosmopolitan portion of a country that, according to your essay, quote, tend to represent only one third of the population, but dominate their country's politics and society. They are highly educated and mobile. They value openness and autonomy and therefore see borders as inherently disagreeable. They tend to be individualistic, but also progressive, end quote. So, you know, you're from India, you're getting educated in Canada. Where would you say you fall in the somewhere versus anywhere paradigm? And do you feel like you've personally shifted at all in the last several years as you've kind of examined the anywhere's views on issues of patriotism? Yeah, so I mean, I would obviously, uh, I wouldn't lie to anyone here. I am an anywhere in that sort of class spectrum. Like, obviously, I did grow up in public housing in India when I was young. But the thing is that India and China have benefited from neoliberalism in that the offshoring of jobs and so on has benefited our country's economic growth. And that has led to the upliftment of people who were in the lower middle class and has made them middle to upper middle class. So that's something I'm pretty honest with and pretty open about as well. So in that sense, in a class sense, I fall on the anywhere side of the spectrum. But because I come from a country that is economically not as progressive as, by progressive, I mean economically not as well developed as the United States or anywhere in the West. My social views are obviously, you know, far removed from the anywheres of these Western countries. And in many senses, I think uh, my social views would actually tend to identify more with the somewheres of these countries than the anywheres of these countries, even though my 
economic sort of class is more resemblant of the anywheres. But that's what I feel. And I think uh, this gives me a good insight into what these anywheres, you know, tend to feel and tend to believe in. Because like I said, I, I attend a college, I attend a university, one of the most prestigious in Canada. And, I, and I've interacted with these people. I've interacted with the latte leftists, the people who drink Starbucks every day and go about microaggressions and privileges and so on. And I've been part of these organizations myself. And I have left uh, for a, a lot of the reasons I described previously. I would characterize myself as an anywhere, but I think that being an anywhere gives me the lens to examine these people from a sort of direct perspective, being amongst them. But at the same time, I have also been, I have experienced being a somewhere, you know, a good portion of my childhood, essentially. And yeah, that's pretty much mostly it. There are some touchstones to your experience that kind of mirror a previous guest, a gentleman by the name of Rob Henderson, who grew up in um, the foster care system here in the United States, mm -hmm. quite working class, someone even would say poor, and then went on to join the military. And then after the military was educated at Yale and now Cambridge. And he kind of talks about a similar phenomenon that he kind of witnessed when he went from a working class background to all of a sudden being thrust into Yale after the military and being introduced to a whole new set of language, you know, like a whole type of talking about things that was completely foreign to any of the men and women that he served with or any of the people he grew up with. It was very foreign to him and, and uh, in many ways kind of abrasive. So it's interesting listening to your story coming from public housing in India and kind of experiencing something similar when you move to, you know, a prestigious college in Canada. Yeah, like, you know, there's a completely, you know, different sort of language and different sort of, you know, pathologies, I would say, would be a word to describe it amongst these aspiring elites mm -hmm. in the college. And like, it's it's pretty clear that these people do not claim to be representing the subaltern of society. They're basically trying to climb on the social ladder and be the, the elites of tomorrow. So one thing I just kind of wanted to get your opinion on, and you kind of addressed this right at the start of answering the last question, your being from India, a country that you acknowledge has benefited rather profoundly from globalism and I don't know what other way to say it, kind of the the exporting of jobs that were once that were once solely within Western nations, right? Like yeah. uh, a lot of working class jobs that have now been digitized or now moved to countries like India or in the other direction, you'll see a lot of middle class workers from India come to the United States and work for tech companies, etc. There's a whole issue around, I think, certain kinds of tech related visas here that yep. a lot of Indians in the United States are kind of pushing for. Understandably, I totally get that. But yeah, there's a kind of tension there, I think, right? Like, I'm wondering how you think that through since you're from India, and yet it has benefited so much from globalism. So you also sympathize with the Western countries that through their globalist policies have benefited the very country that you were born in that has then allowed you the mobility to travel to those Western countries and then sympathize with the people in those Western countries who would rather that globalism not gone and actually improved India, right? Like there's a kind yeah. of almost circular, I, I, don't, I don't know if I have like a larger question there, but it, it's something really interesting and I haven't had the chance to talk about it with someone who's kind of lived through that like you have. So I just mm. want to get your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. So I think I understand where you're going with this. Like you want to, you know, sort of address this sort of contradiction that I have where in that, like, you know, I'm from a country that's benefited from these globalist policies, yet I sympathize with the people who have not benefited from these globalist policies in the West. It's a very interesting question. And I think to a degree, both are possible because India, like I said, has mostly benefited from 
globalization, not industrially. We are not an industrial powerhouse as compared to China. We are mostly of our offshoring has been tech jobs in sense like call centers and so on. We're developing our own Silicon Valley in Bangalore and so on. But I think why I call myself a national communist in India, but a patriotic socialist in the United States is that once you realize that a lot of India's structures, societal structures and economic sort of modes of production of pretty feudalist. In that sense, I take inspiration in India from someone like Deng Xiaoping, which I, I understand, you know, many on the sort of Marxist out of the spectrum would call him a revisionist and so on. But I think once you realize that if you really want to be a socialist, you have to abolish feudalism, get to capitalism and then try to attempt socialism. And I think that's basically what my view is. So in that sense, I would be open to fairer globalization. I know it's a very, very ironic term to use, fair globalization, very oxymoronic in that sense. But globalization has benefited in capital development for India. India, in this sense, has also been pretty you know, indigenous in a lot of its industries and manufacturing, and it's growing. And a lot of its manufacturing growth has not necessarily been you know, jobs taken from the United States or jobs taken from the West. Like I said, it's mostly been call centers. And the jobs that have been shipped away, industrial manufacturing jobs from the West that have been shipped away, have been shipped away to countries like China, which is where most of my concern lies, is that the reason this was done is in the hopes that it will make China democratic and that the results of this, you know, greater capital would result in greater redistribution to these people. But I don't think either of these have worked out anywhere. So what my basic sort of fundamental belief is, is that a lot of these jobs that have been shipped away to China, a good portion of them should be returned to ensure that there's a strong and stable middle class and a working class in the Western countries, in that it does not create instability there. Well, at the same time, I think these people are at such high levels of capital development that they cannot simply just shun globalization and do away with it completely. It is just impossible with the level of capital development these people are in. Like I said, a good portion of these jobs should be sent back to their own countries in the West and help develop their own working class, you know, indigenous manufacturing sectors. But a good portion of them should also be routed to countries that are, have shown, for example, reciprocal trade development because India for example, comes into one of these countries. Vietnam as well comes into one of these countries. But China doesn't. China is pretty mercantilist in that sense. So that's basically where, how I address my contradiction in that, you know, you do need some jobs back in your country, essential jobs that help with the national security, supply chains of your countries. And I think they deserve to be back in the West. You do deserve to give these working class people a job of dignity. And I think it's, it's a good thing to be able to go to work every day. And I, and I respect that work ethic and so on. But at the same time, I don't think it's impossible for them to completely ditch globalization. And I don't think it's beneficial for a country like India to completely reject capital development at such an early stage of its economic development. So yeah, that's basically how I reconcile both these. That tension would kind of resolve itself if, as you suggested, a lot of the jobs are repatriated to the United States and then the working class feels satisfied. Then if there's overflow, let's say, if there's more work that still needs to be done, there's not going to be a resentment if those additional jobs or, like you said, the jobs that are just better suited, let's say, to a developing nation. Because as you said, the United States and, and other Western countries are so developed that there is a certain point where certain jobs just wouldn't make as much sense here as they would elsewhere. I think that there wouldn't be resentment if the working class in America, for instance, felt like they were being taken care of. Whereas I feel like right now, and I think you point this out in your essay and elsewhere, I think there's bitterness because they don't feel that. They feel that they're not being put first, that they're being actually oftentimes being put last, either through the export of their industry or the import of low wage, oftentimes under the table labor. Yeah. 
So what would you say are the commonalities that bind this sort of shift that's happening among the elite in the West? And it seems to be happening in kind of equal parts in America, Canada, and the UK, specifically in the Anglosphere. What is it about the Anglosphere that seems to make it such a ripe breeding ground for sort of this anti-patriotic, anti-nation state advocacy that's happening amongst the elite left? I think a lot of it has to do with the impact of historical policies. For example, in the UK, they think patriotism is people who want the British Empire back and they want brown people in collar chains and so on. I don't think that's you know what these people want, firstly. And American patriotism to a lot of the left-wing uh, professional managerial class people is basically running with the Confederate flag, shouting the N-word and so on. That's what they think that it means. But it's completely disconnected from what these actual people feel. Patriotism for most of the people in the working class and the subaltern is not racist. It's not in any way, shape or form. And I think that this phenomena is not just evident in the Anglosphere, in the Anglo-West as well. I speak to a lot of French leftists as well, and they say that it's pretty prominent in their own country as well. And that's why, you know, someone like Macron was, he came out highly against the American sort of woke mentality and American multiculturalist mentality as well, when the attacks happened in France a couple of months back. So I think that this phenomenon obviously started in the Anglo-West. It is a cultural export to a lot of these countries. And uh, France is one of those countries that is rejecting it. And a good deal of the left wing in France also rejects it because their concept of secularism is, for example, completely different from the concept of secularism in the Anglosphere. So I think different values come into clash there. But I think most of it is a cultural export from these Anglo countries. And it's being adopted in a lot of Western countries as well. And it's seeping its way to India as well, for example. Before uh, Modi came to power in India, for example, we had the uh, Congress party in power, which was the political party that has ruled us essentially since our independence. First as feudal socialists, which is basically, they were continuing feudalism, but calling it socialism because they were doing five-year plans. And then they started doing neoliberalism. But essentially, a lot of them are still aspiring Anglo elites. The only problem for them is the fact that they have an Indian passport and they just can't, you know, travel around the world without a visa. So I think this sort of Anglo elitism is a cultural export that has taken root in a lot of these countries and the elites of all of these countries. But the subaltern in the Anglosphere rejects it. And the subaltern in a lot of the other parts of the world also rejects it. So I think that's basically what it is, is that, like I said, these people are anywheres. And for them, their cultural, the cultural values of the elites, it's their class that is conscious and not the working class in all of these countries. Yeah, I remember reading about the Yellow Vest movement from last year, and I think pretty much every mainstream American, anywhere left of center news outlet, was labeling the Yellow Vest movement as right wing. Yeah. And that's just absurd. None of their demands, at least that I could see, under any microscope could be labeled as right wing. It is this kind of... uh weird left-wing version of a kind of chauvinism where everything that happens throughout the world has to be seen through the American lens. Yeah. And it's like gross. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. just like once you see it, right? It's like that movie They Live, right? Like once you yeah, yeah. once you put the glasses on, yeah, it's this, this weird cultural export, right? Where a lot of politics that are distinctly American start getting grafted, probably by the elites in these countries, as you've noted, onto environments onto cultural situations and, and political movements that that are really unlike anything that's happening here in the states 
And it, it creates this weird kind of dissonance that really doesn't make sense. Yeah, like I think if you look at it, for example, with Black Lives Matter, I think that was the most glaring example of what you're describing here. Black Lives Matter, you know, it comes from a sort of racial inequality perspective of the United States. And the racial experience in the United States is not the same racial experience that countries like Canada have had, countries like the UK have had. Like obviously, UK has had colonialism, and a great deal of it was racism. But it was mostly obviously for material gain in that they needed colonies, they needed resources, and they needed dominance to be able to grow and industrialize their own economy. But the sort of Black Lives Matter racial um, narrative does not fit anywhere close to UK's political uh, scenarios, and it doesn't really fit in with Canada's political scenario as well. So this BLM, Black Lives Matter, is completely a cultural export. Like if there were protests in Germany for Black Lives Matter, there are not many black people living there. And I think Germany had more more wrongings with the Holocaust than it did with black people, in my opinion. So obviously, like, you know, this is a sort of cultural export that comes from the United States. And like you said, it's like that they live kind of glasses moment where you realize that the way we view, you know, most of the world, and this is not just China, Russia, or India, but even if you view France or even the UK from an American perspective, it just, a lot of it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think my favorite example from the BLM movement this summer was Finland, yeah. which is 90% ethnic Finnish and I think 96% racially white. And I think 0.3% of its population is black. And that's specifically Somali immigrants. <laughs> and I saw over 10,000 people in Finland marching for black lives. And I like, look, if they're marching in support of an American cause, that's fine. I, I, I have no problem with that, right? Yeah. Like there was a pray for Paris hashtag happening after Charlie Hebdo. Yeah. So that's normal. But when there's signs in the crowd talking about how they need to dismantle white supremacy, I'm wondering what the hell they're talking about. Because they're like 90, more than 95% white. What do, what do you have to dismantle it? Just, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Finland has spent most of its time colonized. Yeah. Like by, by Russia and other countries. So it's thrown into such stark relief when you see it in these scenarios, like the one you mentioned in Germany or the one I'm talking about in Finland, in which it just does not map at all. We could dedicate an entire additional podcast to this topic, but I do want to talk more about your essay. Later in the essay, you cite a world value survey that shows that, quote, 100% of people in low-income groups in the United States, for example, are either very or quite proud of their country, end quote. And then you immediately follow that with, quote, if the populist left claims to want to represent these people in an electoral democracy, it has to embrace what workers want economic radicalism and inclusive patriotism. The left must redefine patriotism as that which supports economic solidarity, one that helps bring up strong families, one that provides equal opportunities to all of its citizens, one that embraces the nation state and America, Britannia for all, end quote. And we've seen what a combination of left-wing economics combined with a traditionalist approach to culture and cultural issues can do. You mentioned this previously, the UK Conservative Party led by Boris Johnson, won its largest majority since 1987 last year. Yeah. And you've touched on this a bit in one of your previous answers, but I kind of want to dig into it a little more. Not everyone on the left is crazy. Like not everyone on the left yeah. is woke. There should be enough people on the left in any one of these Western countries to see the writing on the wall. You can't see what happens with Donald Trump or even more impressively with Boris Johnson and not understand that there is a there there. So why aren't liberals in these countries getting wise to this strategy and just kicking ass? 
Yeah, that's a good question. And I think um, a lot of it just has to do with the culture of the left that it exists today. Obviously, when I speak of the left, I mean most of the left. I don't mean every single left-wing person is, you know, crazy or something. And there are a lot of sensible people on the left that I interact with. And just as there are many sensible people on the right and the center, I think a good deal of it has to do with the sort of moral social authoritarianism that exists within these left-wing professional managerial class left-wing movements. Basically, like I said, you cannot speak out against the heterodox view, otherwise you will be labeled a fascist bigot. So I think that sort of cancel culture is definitely one of the aspects that people don't go forward with their own beliefs as such. But I think a good deal of that awakening against the awakening is happening, for example, right now in the United States. I'm not sure if you've heard of Jimmy Dore. Basically, he's being canceled by every single left. Yeah, yeah he's been canceled by every single left wing media gatekeeper for saying that AOC should table a floor vote on Medicare for all if she wants to vote for Nancy Pelosi as a speaker. Because she said that now that the Democrats are in power, we're going to push them left. And he's being canceled by almost every single left-wing gatekeeper. He shared proof. For example, he used to work with the Young Turks, Jimmy Doe, and one of the main co-hosts of Young Turks is Anna Kasparian. And he shared this sort of document that said Anna Kasparian has been receiving money from regime change organizations. And then another person who opposed him, who goes on majority report with Sam Seder, I seem to forget her name. I think it's Nomiki Konst or something. Basically, she was advocating for the regime change war in Libya and saying that that was a feminist movement to oust Gaddafi, for example. And like I said, it, it supports the entire notion of the class analysis of what the left is, that it's a professional class movement. And their wokeism is sort of the new casus belli for foreign interventions, for example. But on the question of why many on the left have not woken up to this fact is that they simply don't want to wake up to this fact because it delegitimizes them in front of their audience by saying, okay, you know what, we admit we were probably wrong here. And they, they can't do that. So I think For better or for worse, these people will exist for a long time, but they will wither away, hopefully, soon to come. But a lot of the sensible people will realize that you just cannot work within these existing left-wing structures. For example, the Democratic Socialists of America. They are democratic in the sense that they are pro-democratic party, but they're not socialist in any way, shape or form. You know, a lot of their policies that they advocate for are completely ludicrous. They in verbatim support the policies of open borders. It's not like, you know, Trump is deriding amnesty for certain illegal immigrants as open borders. These people literally call the support for their policies as open borders. They do not see the need for a nation of the United States. And there was also, for example, the New York DSA saying that, you know, New York as a city must be dismantled and given away to indigenous people people who used to hold this land hundreds of years ago and so on. And then another thing, the Seattle DSA chapter calling for reparations and how they're going to do reparations. Every single white member of the DSA who gives them dues will be redistributed to black people. And it's just absolutely crazy sort of once you realize that, I think any single sane leftist who realizes this must come to terms with the fact that to win an economic populist alliance, an actual serious leftist has to leave the left as it is today. Yeah, and I think you already are seeing that happening. You've cited a couple stats on the amount of people who left identified who voted for Brexit or Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party last year. And perhaps that's just what has to happen, that the left just needs to bleed enough of its traditional liberal 
voters to the right, there's a, a very real shift happening here in the United States that you can see in the polling data amongst Hispanic and Black Americans. And even a lot of the Asian population, Vietnamese, et cetera, they're drifting right. And not because they're necessarily getting more conservative. They're drifting right because there are things that are being said in some corners of the right. And I don't know if this is going to disappear now that Trump is going to be out of office, but there are just certain things that are being said by Boris Johnson, by Trump, that connect with a lot of voters that are not necessarily hyper-political in nature, but are rather issues of wanting to feel proud about where they're from, wanting to feel a sense of place, somewheres versus anywheres that Goodhart talks about. And I think that one of the things that I find so exhausting about things like what you're talking about with giving the land back to the natives and land acknowledgements that happen a lot in Canada, for instance. Yep. Oh, yeah. Why it annoys me is not because I have a problem with acknowledging the history of settler colonialism, right? Like that's a real thing. It happened. The indigenous populations in Canada have been mistreated until, I mean, still to this day, they're not living fantastic lives and they've been mistreated by the Canadian government up until fairly recent history. So I acknowledge that it's real, but why this performative baloney is so annoying to me is because I know it's disingenuous. Yeah. If those people had the power to actually do what they say they would want to do, I know they wouldn't do it. Yeah, they're not going to do it. You're going to give your country away so that you then have nowhere to live or you're going to then live on the native land, which you say isn't yours. But where are you going to move? Like, and I know that you're kind of the same way here. Like, it should be results oriented policy, not performative baloney crap. Exactly. Like I I usually don't get this heated, but like it just annoys me because it actually doesn't help anyone except yourself look good. Exactly. That's literally what it is. It's performative wokeness. And the funny thing is uh, now that you bring this up, uh, you know, the land back and, you know, indigenous rights and so on. The two greatest, I would say, examples of their approaches of indigenous land back and one of the greatest examples of this has been Israel surprisingly. And and this is where these woke leftists don't admit it. I mean, you can obviously have qualms with Israel. I do have a lot of issues with what Israel does uh, with Palestinians and so on. And But if you look at it, you know, an indigenous land-backed movement, and they're supposedly calling themselves socialist, what was Israel? Israel was literally an indigenous land-backed movement, which started the sort of immigration and the first governments of Israel until the first, I think, 30 to 40 years of its rule were labor socialist governments of Israel. And the biggest sort of proponent of the cause of Israel in the United Nations was actually Joseph Stalin. It's pretty surprising to these people. And another one is obviously, if you look at the Hindutva in India, both of these examples cited by the left, the woke left in these countries calling for land back, basically, is that, you know, Israel is fascism. And what Modi is doing, Hindutva, is also fascism. But what's hilarious is if these people are calling these indigenous rights movement. I'm sorry, that's literally what it is. I'm using their own definitions to define the very movements they claim to want in their own country. You know, these are indigenous rights movements. So if you hate them happening all around the world, but you want them in your own country, it either says that your own policies are so-called far-right ethno-nationalist, blood and soil nationalism, or you acknowledge that these are the results of your policies and you own it. You can't do both. You can't say that Israel and Hindutva in India, BJP is fascism, but we want to do the exact same policies here in New York and give the land back to the natives. Either you said that, no, this is not fascism and this is something that we want emulated here, or you said that this is fascism and we are also advocating fascism in our country. 
Just to take it back to your essay real quick, you note that the same tactic that the conservatives employed in the UK, which is, again, like we talked about earlier, a liberal economics that's kind of rooted in like a patriotic nationalism, I guess you could call it. Mm -hmm. It also won in Denmark in 2019 with its prime minister saying, quote, for me, it's becoming increasingly clear that the price of unregulated globalization, mass immigration and the free movement of labor is paid by the lower classes. And that part of the essay and that quote, the fact that the left has come to support unregulated globalization and mass immigration in the first place bewilders me. Yeah. And it actually reminds me of an essay by Angela Nagel. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Called The Left Case Against Open Borders for American Affairs Journal. And I just want to quote a brief passage from it because I think it's, it's really relevant to this conversation. She wrote, quote, the transformation of open borders into a, quote, left position is a very new phenomenon and runs counter to the history of the organized left in fundamental ways. Open borders has long been a rallying cry of the business and free market right. Drawing from neoclassical economists, these groups have advocated for liberalizing migration on the grounds of market rationality and economic freedom. They oppose limits on migration for the same reason that they oppose restrictions on the movement of capital. The Koch-funded Cato Institute, which also advocates lifting legal restrictions on child labor, has churned out radical open borders advocacy for decades, arguing that support for open borders is a fundamental tenet of libertarianism, end quote. And I mean, Bernie Sanders in 2016 or 2015 famously said when asked about open borders that it's a Koch brothers proposal. While the American left hasn't obviously embraced a true open borders policy per se, what has caused such a large policy shift in favor of mass low-wage immigration that harms the very unions that were once vital to the left coalition? I mean, I know you talk about the death of the union, but that happened over decades of time. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to figure out, was it just that the left didn't care for so many decades? And then once the unions were already depleted? then they just didn't care about them anymore because they weren't a powerful enough political block. Because like I mentioned earlier, the left of today is in direct opposition to Cesar Chavez. Yep. Like Cesar Chavez, and most of my friends on the left literally do not know this, was virulently anti-illegal immigration. Yep. On weekends, he would go with a cousin, I believe, to the California-Mexico border, and he would wait for migrants that he would see and he would basically do a citizen's arrest and then hand them over to the government like he was that vehemently against it because he understood right like you can feel whatever way you want about that but what i will say is that he understood that for a union to be able to organize and organize in favor of a higher wage they have to be able to control the labor supply exactly and i i just don't understand what has happened i understand that the left now doesn't care but how did they bleed this out over the course of basically four decades? So, like I said, the composition of what makes the left has changed since the start of neoliberalism to today. So, obviously, the left uh, used to be labor. It used to be against the economic reforms of Reagan and Thatcher and so on. And if you look at how Bill Clinton came to power, he came to power saying that, oh, you know, these people had 12 years to do their policies. We're going to reverse that. Didn't work out for the working class and so on. And he got a lot of working class support. What does he do? He signs NAFTA and he admits China into the World Trade Organization, etc. and so on. So I think this entire alienation and the decline of unions has led to what today is the left claiming to want to represent them, but obviously they don't represent them. And why these people support policies like open borders is, like I said, the class composition of what makes today's left, the professional managerial class. They know that if they rely on cheap labor, cheap illegal labor from down south or from the global south as well, because that helps keep costs low 
for their own lifestyles, writing for all of these, you know, magazines in New York or Washington, where for which they aren't paid that much either. That's essentially what it is. Neoliberal economics and woke social policies are basically two sides of the same coin. When I was referencing, you know, how the Blairites and the centrists and the Labour Party and the wokes both were against Brexit. So I think that comes into play here as well. Obviously, economically, it benefits the establishment neoliberal wing and the libertarian economic wing of the Democrat and Republican parties. But socially as well, they are more keen on putting a band-aid on something rather than actually performing a surgery. Because obviously, you know, these people shout against imperialism and so on. But at the end of the day, like I think as Jimmy Dore himself exposed that a lot of these so-called left-wing media cheerleaders have been paid money by, you know, regime change organizations. And, you know, they're cheering for the, uh, for example, the uh, overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya. Like I'm, I'm not saying I'm pro-Gaddafi, for example. I'm, I'm just, you know, referencing that that basically just led to an enormous illegal immigration surge in the U- uh, in Europe, which led to the rise of the far right there. That's what I'm saying is, is that these people are fundamentally left, but they're left neoliberals. That's what today's left is. Because like I said, they're, they're not working class. They don't represent the unions in any way, shape or form, because the unions themselves are staffed by these people. And the unions don't represent their workers and the unions have been in a decline since neoliberalism. But at the same time, their own social policies, like I said, are the the useful idiots for the neoliberal economics they so claim to despise. That's pretty much what it is, is that, you know, their, their social policies are the manufactured consent for neoliberal economics, while at the same time, their own composition is not a labor composition because of the death of unions and who takes the mantle of the left. It is these basically HR cops. Basically, these people were supposed to join the HR of companies like Goldman Sachs and so on. But then the 2008 crisis happened and then they're like, oh, no, we've been disenfranchised. And they're similar to the sort of industrial heartland workers of the Midwest who lost their jobs to China. It's just that they cope in a different way and they loathe the very industrial workers in these heartlands because these people are fundamentally the professional managerial class. And the failing of capitalism for them is not that capitalism as a system has collapsed and has failed the workers. It's just that they feel that capitalism is not favoring their class. It's not creating enough elite jobs for them. And the biggest fear they have is actually becoming the very workers they claim to look down upon and becoming proletarianized, as as I like to use the word. Yeah, that sort of gets at that phenomenon of elite overproduction, Yep, that there are too many elites and too few jobs, which is often why People from very highly educated backgrounds like the Yales and the Harvards and the Dukes oftentimes tend to be the most against the idea of meritocracy because they did all the steps that society told them to do. They did, you know, all the extracurriculars and they got the 4.0 GPAs and they went to the best colleges and they come out of college, right? Oftentimes saddled with debt. They're 26, 27 years old. They're making maybe five figures. And they're looking around thinking like, where is the world that I was promised? And oftentimes ending up frustrated with the country that promised them something and then didn't give it to them. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, building upon that, exactly what you just said is a very interesting contradiction within the sort of uh, professional managerial class that makes up a lot of the college graduates and so on is that they champion open borders because they want that cheap labor to be able to fund their lifestyles. But the adverse effect of that is that it creates competition globally amongst 
global elites who are vying for the same positions that you are. So it's a double-edged sword. It, it's meant to kill the working class so that they can effectively have a cheaper life. But at the same time, it creates competition amongst themselves for elites from around the world. And you will never hear these people, for example, shout against the H-1B visas that, you know, prioritize tech workers from low-paid, you know, indentured tech workers from India because that's racist to go on against it. But actually, this is the very policy that helps them the most, which I found really surprising. And like my hope, this, this sort of left will eat itself up sooner or later for the better. We've talked about the managerial class and how elites are disconnected from the working class, but that doesn't necessarily get to why they're so much less patriotic, right? To build on the data from the World Values Survey that you cited, it's virtually replicated in an authoritative data analysis from the General Social Survey from the University of Chicago. Over 90% of America's poorest would rather be citizens of the United States than anywhere else in the world. And this swelling patriotism that exists in our poorest citizens is shown again and again, either via Chris Arnotti's reporting for his book, Dignity, Seeking Respect in Backrow America, or the Socioeconomic Demographics of the U.S. Military. But it's nearly inverted when you look at America's most liberal citizens. According to a report entitled American Fabric, Identity and Belonging, which is a deep survey of 8,000 Americans that was done this year in 2020, found that 100% of devoted conservatives were proud to be American. 96% of traditional conservatives said the same thing. 87% of moderates echoed those feelings. But the more liberal the respondents got, the further that number plummeted. 65% of traditional liberals felt proud to be American. 60% of passive liberals. And the only group to poll at less than 50%, the group with the least amount of pride in being American, was progressive activists at 34%. It was lower than any other demographic, no matter how you were measuring it, by race, age, generation, any metric, it was the lowest. So, you know, we've talked about the managerial class and whatnot, but that doesn't necessarily, in my mind, explain this trend. So what the hell is going on? Why are so many on the left reticent or even outright hostile to the idea of a healthy kind of patriotism or nationalism, call it what you will, or even sometimes the very idea of a nation state itself. What is happening here? Yeah. So I think this just mixes in with the analysis of these so-called somewheres and anywheres as well, is that obviously these people view the nation state as a restriction on their own freedoms. Their sort of ideal life is to be able to go anywhere around the world and work a six-figure comfortable job be able to travel the world freely. That's the life they were promised. And, you know, they hate their country precisely because the country has not delivered to them, number one. Number two is that there's so-called social beliefs that they have learned. Like, obviously, like I said in the beginning of my essay for the Bellows, it's okay to criticize America for its foreign policy, for its economic policies and so on. But then venturing onto anti-America hatred for your own country is just, it's just counterproductive. And that's, that's basically what it is, is their economic positions, like I said, it is their, their class positions are fundamentally opposed to any sort of nation state existing. The elites around the world have more in common with each other. They recognize that. They recognize their class consciousness, the class consciousness of global capital. And the the people that inhabit today's left, the upper echelons of today's left, are aspiring elites. And they also recognize the same thing. But why they have become so 
virulently anti-American is precisely because America's failed them and their social views of how, you know, America is racist, uh, settler colonialism, and so on. Like, obviously, you have to kind of set the rights and wrongs and so on. You have to acknowledge your past, which I think a lot of people do. But the reason they are so far removed from sections of society is obviously their own class composition and a desire to one-up one another I think a lot of it goes into psychology as well, which I mean, I'll, I'll openly admit I'm not too much of a psychologist or too much into psychology to be able to give a perfect analysis. But it's just a sort of bourgeois narcissism that comes from within where they seek to seek attention from various um, underprivileged groups, so they like to say, and they try to out-radical them by saying, oh, no, America is a racist country. We must dismantle America and so on. So it's, it's a class composition issue. It's an issue with their own social beliefs. And it's just an issue of bourgeois narcissism. And if you mix all three, it just makes complete sense. What you said reminds me of a passage from an essay by Matthew Crawford. He, he wrote it for Unheard. It, it's a pretty recent. It came out, I think, something like a week ago. Mm -hmm. It's titled How Race Politics Liberated the Elites. And there's oh, yeah. this quote from it that I think is just like right there with what you were saying. Quote, very simply, if the nation is fundamentally racist, sexist, and homophobic, I owe it nothing. More than that, conscience demands that I repudiate it, end quote. And it's so interesting, right, Sadak, because it's only when you travel outside of your own country that you should understand how good you have it. If you come from a country that's developed, if, if you come from a middle class or upper middle class life, right? Yeah. The, the joke used to be, oh, you know, it's people in the middle of the country, the people that don't have a passport, the people that never have traveled anywhere. They don't know. They're ignorant. They don't know the wider world. They haven't been to Bangladesh or Papua New Guinea or whatever. They haven't really seen how the world is. They're not grateful for everything that they have. And yet it seems like the very people that should be grateful and, and again, this isn't excusing the very real progress we still have to make here in America. We are an imperfect country. No country is perfect. Yeah. The disconnect that I don't understand is how the people who have been abroad and have seen other countries that are developing and can see the advantages, the political and socioeconomic, the luxuries that we have, the job opportunities that we have, what is the cognitive dissonance that is happening in these people's minds? where they can travel to these other countries, see that they have as many or oftentimes much worse problems, especially around issues of sexuality, gender, race, ethnicity, systems of oppression. How can they travel to these countries and not gain perspective? How can they travel outside of the United States and still think that the United States is basically the great Satan. Is it all performative? Do they actually believe this? I mean, I know you're, you can't psychologically analyze uh, these folks, but I guess what I'm just wondering is how can you go to the ocean and still not believe in water? Exactly. And I think this just stems from the, uh, you know, the transformation of the social beliefs that inhabit the so-called managerial left that exists, is that even if these people actually do end up going and visiting countries that are, you know, worse off economically or socially than the United States, for example, if they go to Iraq, their thought you know, it's, it's, it, it would be rightful to think that, oh, my God, you know, the United States has done a lot of harm to this country and so on. But the second thought would not be that, you know, I'm glad that I'm living in the United States and not in the bombed parts of Baghdad. Their thought would be, oh, America's evil. America deserves to be dismantled. So it's just an evolution of their own social beliefs. And I think it's, it's, it's come from uh, when the so-called millennials generation could not accumulate more assets. So the sort of material 
signifier of progress was replaced by a cultural signifier of progress. And you are holier than your subalterns if you have a much more radical opinion now, it turns out. So that's why they think that they are holier and absolved of sin if they are advocating for the destruction of their own nation state, which stems from their own bourgeois narcissism. And it stems from their own sort of class beliefs is that they feel in general as a class, the nation is a restriction on their own mobility and, uh, you know, so on. So these are basically the, the left of today, the managerial left of today are basically just failed libertarians who just could not get a job as HR managers at Goldman Sachs. That's basically what it is. So that's just comes into play. And like I said, with if they go to Iraq, their thought would not be that, you know, at least I'm glad I'm living in the United States. Their thought would be that America is inherently evil. It deserves to be dismantled. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Failed libertarians who couldn't get a job at Goldman Sachs. That is a, that's a great line. You should put that on poster. <laughs> that's yeah. really good. Yeah. Again, I think that there are a lot of touchstones. I just hear a lot of similarities between the kind of observations you've made about this kind of elite class and the the ones that Rob Henderson has made, he kind of touched on a similar point as recently as decades ago and really pretty much for all of human history, the way that you would show your wealth was through like physical goods, right? You would show you were wealthy because you owned a very expensive car or lived in an amazing mansion or wore very expensive clothes, but now that's considered gauche. So he has this whole idea of basically what he calls luxury beliefs. Yeah, which is the way that you show your status is by having these like super specific hyper left opinions around things like microaggressions and various ideologies that take a decent amount of time to research and and to learn the language because it is a very specific language that if you spoke it in front of a working class person, they actually wouldn't have any idea what you were talking about when you were mentioning your pronouns. But it is a signifier to other elites that you are of a certain class. Yep. And that language has become a substitute for what was usually material goods. Exactly. I think Rob Henderson is building on from uh, Thorstein Veblen, uh, who was an economist uh, in the United States from Norway. He uh, wrote his book about the beliefs of the luxury class as well. And I think it's a very, very interesting book. And I think Rob here is right as well. This is a result of the fact that asset accumulation for the millennial generation stopped right around when the asset accumulation period stopped is when the sort of wokeness discourse accelerated. And the the greatest acceleration of this obviously was after the 2008 crash and Occupy Wall Street. So obviously, I mean, I would say this wokeness discourse was used to sow division in a revolt against the bourgeoisie, if you want to call that the Occupy Wall Street movement. But at the same time, it also became a signifier for aspiring elites to say that, you know, I mean, you and I very well know that we can't get material benefits as such. So obviously, while we are fighting for them, this is my signifier of how I am an elite or I aspire to be an elite. Look at the words I use, such as latinks or, you know, so on. So I think that's basically what it is. And, you know, it's just it's just the evolution of uh, Veblen's belief of uh, the, the luxury beliefs uh, from a more class-centered analysis to a more cultural analysis precisely because the economic benefits that come from asset accumulation stopped coming for the millennial generation and they figured they had to somehow cope, but in a different way. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And to give credit to Henderson where it's due, he does, in one of his essays uh, for Quillet, actually, he specifically structures the essay around building on Veblen's yeah. theory of the leisure class. Exactly. 
I want to get this on the record. There's just these quotes from the American Fabric Identity and Belonging Survey. There's just a couple of quotes in here that I just want to get on the record because, you know, I too, I guess for a very long time, and I guess I can't really identify out of it, but I suppose I could be called in anywhere. Mm-hmm. I went to a pretty elite grad school that was predominantly international students. So yeah. of means, and, and those were my friends and still are. It was like the crowd that I ran in for many years. Again, it wasn't really until 2016 that I began to really consider and appreciate the people that I used to call those who lived in the flyover states, right? I would just speak so dismissively about them. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I really began to reconsider that kind of, I mean, I can't really call it anything else, the kind of bigotry that I had towards my fellow citizens. But I just want to read, see if I can find these quotes here. Just going to Okay. I just wanted to read a couple of these quotes from that survey because I think that when we talk about issues of race, especially here in America, we talk about them as if everyone who's black or everyone who's brown has a very specific political view and that to divert from that view is to be some kind of traitor or you're inauthentic or the polling wasn't accurate or something. And there are just a couple quotes and I'm going to try and not read them all because they're rather long and I don't want to take up a ton of your time just reading quotes. But I think it just really puts a point to the discussion that we've been having today and a lot of the points that you've been making. So The first quote is from a woman named Sylvia, who identifies as a traditional conservative from Gen X. Uh, She lives in Nevada and she is black. She writes, quote, I have always felt proud of my nation, even though my family has been negatively affected in the past. I'm black and my grandfather was a soldier in World War II. He told me even though minority soldiers were treated terribly at that time, that the United States is still the best country a black person could be raised in. And then later she says, I am the first member of my family to graduate college, buy a house, save funds to put my own children through college, have traveled to many countries, and I feel a sense of pride being an American. And it's always amazing when I go to different countries and the people I interact with who are fascinated by America and ask me many questions. And then there's this other quote from Marisol, who's also a traditional conservative from New York. She's Gen X and she's Hispanic. And she writes, quote, I'm most proud of being an American. I was born and raised here. I'm grateful to live and be a part of a country with so many freedoms. I allowed my firstborn to join the military at age 17 to protect these freedoms. I love the American flag. I stand at attention near tears every time the star-spangled banner is sung. My country is not a perfect country, but the good outweighs the bad, end quote. And like I am saying this as someone who I used to like smirk when I would see like an American flag hanging outside of a house or something in high school. I would sit for the national anthem sometimes out of principle. And I I felt like overt displays of patriotism were gauche. Now, I'm not going to like hang an American flag in my living room or something. I still, for me, that's a bridge too far. But over the last few years, I have just really transformed in how I appreciate those sentiments now. And I think it actually was a lot of the left relentlessly crapping on the country where I was just like, guys, I mean, like, this is a little too far. And now when I read these quotes from like Sylvia and Marisol, like I get a little emotional because I find that I find that kind of patriotism that isn't like jingoistic. It's not offensive. Yeah, it's just earnest. And I find that moving in a way that I didn't used to. Has that sort of similar thing happened to you? Yeah, 100%. So I think that's where I kind of realized the need for patriotism in the West. I think nationalism for me in um, like, I've always held these views. But it's just that when I went to college, and my views were kind of tending more towards the woke side, because that's where people who, you know, said they identified with my beliefs believed in. I mean, I found their views a bit weird. And that's kind of why I left many of these organizations. But ultimately, I think my views, uh, what you say is perfectly correct in that, you know, 
the managerial left kind of takes these minorities as monoliths when actually a lot of these people are proud of the fact that they are in a country where they as minorities are treated much better than basically almost any single country that exists. And that's a similar reason I have, for example, patriotism or nationalism towards my own country of India is because I have seen historically, we've been colonized maybe from um, invaders from the Arab world, or maybe the Brits or even the Mongols or you know any other part of the world. So I think I recognize in that sense that why we need India as a nation. And I think a lot of Indians do recognize that as well. And the good thing about the center left, at least in India, is that it is nationalist towards India. It is pro, you know, it is support the troops kind of nationalism, the nationalism that you would see on the right. So I think that problem doesn't really exist as much as it does in India. The main issue, the Indian left is their economics and their support for a lot of feudalist policies. I think, yeah, you're right, is that when I interacted with these people, these people didn't just oppose American imperial adventurism and foreign policies and of neocons and so on they outright opposed the concept of their own country like this was even evident in canada they're saying you know you know canada as a fundamental entity is a racist entity it should be dismantled you know and all this so on and the next thing you know they're shouting oh my god guys please vote for the ndp in the election they will make lives for canadians better so it's like i mentioned this in my essay like how can you claim to help the working class how can you claim to help your citizens by saying that you have economic policies that will benefit them while at the other end you're shouting that their entire concept of citizenry and the nation state should just be abolished and dismantled so it comes off as disingenuous and that's more of a reason why the working class and a lot of the mainstream normie voters are moving to the right and you said you wouldn't hang your own flag of america in your living room and i think you know that's perfectly fine but i think as long as these people can acknowledge why certain people do do that i think that'll make a lot more sense for these people on the left to identify where they stand and where the people on the opposite side of the spectrum stand and where actual working class voters stand, uh, which the left claims to want to represent. I agree completely. To take us to our final question, and uh, it's a question I'm now going to be asking myself in my own mind as well, because I've gotten a little more more heated, a little more passionate on this recording than I usually do, but I'll, I'll put the question to you. We're limited as individuals in all sorts of ways. We're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. I mean, even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of everyone else, every group of people all the time. It's literally impossible. We just, we have too much going on. So is there someone, an individual or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now, abstract or concrete, that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Someone I would like to offer empathy to? Uh, It's a very good question. I would like to offer empathy to basically the working class in India that may better or for worse be affected by the policies that come forward and empathy towards the working class and the sort of subaltern of the West, which have been affected negatively by all of these policies and are derided by the people who claim to want to represent them. So I think I empathize with them and I see where they're coming from and I see why they support the policies they support and I see why they need I wouldn't say need the help because I'm not trying to sound like a paternalistic person, but why it is time to listen to them. Sadak, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your insights, which I think have been very valuable, because I think we would both agree that a healthy left is required for a healthy nation. So thank you for the work that you're doing, the writing you're doing, and I look forward to reading more. Thanks for having me on.